Good afternoon. Thanks for joining for this session, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started because we have a, a limited amount of time and a tremendous amount of knowledge up here on the panel. And so want to give folks, um, want to give our moderator a chance to ask them some questions and want you to have a chance to ask them some questions. So we're going to go ahead and get started right on time. Uh, my name's Ross Wiener. I'm the executive director of the Aspen Institute's Education and Society Program. Uh, and welcome to this afternoon's session on Race to the Top entitled Race to the Future. Uh, will big changes in policy translate into big changes in education? Uh, it is really an amazing time in public education, spurred in, in no small part by President Obama's uh, Race to the Top program. And we have an amazing panel here today. Uh, so we're delighted that you've been able to join us. I'm going to turn it over now to Stephen Brill, uh, a distinguished journalist who has been uh, writing about Race to the Top, uh, both for the national audience as well as uh, in, in the New York Times um, in, a, in a terrific article, as well as uh, in a sort of deeper look uh, for Education Week. And so it's really gotten into the guts of this and probably we'll be writing about it more in the future. So, Stephen, uh, I turn it over to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ross. Can everybody hear me? Someone said at one of the political debates, this doesn't count against my time, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> In my time. Is it on now? Okay, yeah. No? No? You should be on. How are we doing now? No? Thank you. That's, that's, that's better. Um, I hope you all have had a chance to look at uh, the resumes that are... Um, that are attached to the people here. Um, and you'll notice something uh, right off the bat that um, I really don't belong at this table except as someone who sort of stumbled into this group. Um, and I stumbled into it just about a year ago. I was working on a piece for uh, The New Yorker. I decided to, uh, to get uh, back into journalism and was working on this piece about something in the New York City school system called uh, The Rubber Room. And I was out here at Aspen and everybody was talking about something called Race to the Top and I thought it had something to do uh, with going up uh, the mountain here or something and then I found out that it was um, uh, the federal program uh, that most of you know about um, and I got real interested in it and as I got interested I discovered something that, is, um, that you saw evidence of just as we were beginning uh, this discussion which is how all these people said hello to each other, how half the people in the audience hugged all the people here, that there's a network that has been growing out in the country for 10 or 15 years, maybe more, very quietly, of people who have um, decided in one way or another that um, it's just not tolerable that this country lags in public education, uh, that it is just not good enough to say, well, all these people in inner city schools are poor, and everybody knows you can't educate uh, the poor, you can't count on teachers to do it, that there has to be a better way. And uh, the people represented here, and lots of people in this room, um, uh, represent efforts at that kind of a better way, both from the standpoint of research, from the standpoint of the foundations, from the standpoint of Teach for America. Um, what I found was this network has um, typically, uh, they belong to people who started to Teach for America and then have moved out into positions of power in education, in the legislature, in city halls, all across the country. So I 
So I started thinking about this race to the top, and everything was going really well. And I did this article, as, um, as you may know, uh, that was in uh, the Times Magazine a few weeks ago. And then we find that um, as of last week, uh, the party may be over, that um, uh, the Democrats in Congress have struck back at what uh, the reformers think is a great program. Um, the National Education Association, uh, the day before yesterday, um, issued a, quote, vote of no confidence in race to the top. But there was a little bit of a wrinkle there. Um, they didn't actually condemn uh, the president who's responsible for race to the top because the president is a Democrat, and that makes a big difference. So with that as an introduction, I'm going to start with someone uh, whose resume you haven't seen here because um, we were able to add him to the panel at uh, the last minute. Uh, that's Mike Johnston, who is, um, who is um, a state senator from this state of Colorado. Uh, his resume uh, has a lot more than that on it. He graduated from Yale College, went to Teach for America, wrote a fabulous book, which I finished last night, um, about his experience in Teach for America, um, then got degrees from, I guess it's uh, the, Harvard, uh, the Harvard Education School, and then also uh, Yale Law School, uh, which means that, like me, he proves that if you graduate from Yale Law School, you should do something other than practice law. Um, he is now responsible for one of uh, the singular pieces of education reform legislation that has passed in the last few months as a result of uh, the race to the top contest. So I'm going to ask Mike to lead it off to talk about that legislation and also give an overview of where you think we are right now, this week, last week, and next week, in terms of uh, the politics of Race to the Top. Great. Uh, can you hear me? I'll do the test as well. I'm going to have to hunch a little bit. Um, well, thank you all so much for being here. It's a great testament to the interest in this issue that this room is overflowing. Uh, and I think it's also a testament to some of the traction that's gaining around the country. So I think the, the two assignments are, one, to talk a little about my legislation, and then second, to talk about the state and national landscape for what we're after. And I think that what you'll see reflected in our Colorado legislation is um, the core values that you see articulated in Race to the Top. And I think there is an increasing sense of coherence from practitioners and policymakers around the country that these fundamental principles are the right ones. So if you look at the four assurance areas that were articulated in Race to the Top, they are uh, first and foremost, because it's the most heavily weighted, uh, the focus on great teachers and leaders. So what does it take to recruit retain, reward great teachers and leaders. Uh, the second is what does it take to turn around uh, America's most struggling schools. And the third and the fourth are uh, clear internationally benchmarked standards and assessments and data systems that, are, that, that one can use to monitor progress of students. So it's been um, my belief for a long time and probably others on this, on this panel, including some of John's work at Gates, that in, in many ways, the second, third, and fourth assurance are all framing for the first one, which is to say, ultimately, the data systems, the assessment measures, and the standards are all really strategies for us to better figure out what does high-quality teaching and high-quality school leadership look like, how do we identify that, how do we recruit for it, retain for it, and how do we scale it, I think, essentially. And so the, the focus of our bill was, uh, was about just that. It says, we think we ought to change the teaching and school leadership profession so that we fundamentally define success for adults based on success for kids. So our shift is that now 50% 
of the evaluation of all teachers in the state of Colorado and 50% of the evaluation for all principals in the state of Colorado will be based on demonstrated student growth. And the key there is growth. So we're not talking about someone who teaches eighth graders who come in at the fourth grade level being responsible for those kids leaving at the ninth grade level. We're talking about along a continuum of performance, wherever a, a, a child starts when they arrive to you on September 1st, how do we know that when they leave by May 30th, they've actually improved uh, their performance? So that's the key change for us. And then we're saying it's time to change a lot of the fundamental, fundamentally broken pieces of the way that the education system manages human capital or people. And so that once we have a really good definition for what we think makes for an effective teacher and an effective principal, we ought to use those measures to influence all the important decisions that are made throughout an educator's career. And so one of the important ones was uh, the system of tenure uh, is now changed in the state of Colorado so that one, I believe that, that it is a privilege that should remain, but it's one that should be earned based on performance and kept based on performance. So now in Colorado, one earns the protections of, of tenure or non-probationary status, as we call them, based on three years of, of demonstrated effectiveness. And if someone has two years of demonstrated ineffectiveness, they can, they can lose it. We also did away with some of the things that Stephen mentioned, like um, uh, now uh, everyone will have to earn their position year to year. So if someone is displaced from a school, they will have to apply for a position on the open market rather than being uh, forced placed into schools. If you've seen this practice, I represent uh, one of the poorest and uh, highest minority districts in the state of Colorado, Northeast Denver. And what happens disproportionately is when you have teachers that are without an assignment, when August rolls around and they still don't have an assignment, they get forced placed or direct placed into the highest uh, poverty and highest uh, minority schools around the state. And so you have leaders that are trying to turn those schools around without the ability to even bring on the folks who they think share that mission. And so uh, that's a quick overview. I can talk a little bit more about the bill if people are interested. Um, but I think the, the, the state of the landscape, I think politically, is that I, I do think um, that we've hit a place where there is a growing critical mass of support for the idea that we have to build a system that is ultimately built around success for kids and that you have leaders from both sides of the aisle that are committed to that. I think that even after this um, ruffle in D.C. over the last week, I'm, I'm cautiously confident that, that, that uh, there will be the support to make sure that Race the Top continues to be supported, uh, that TIF continues to be supported, which is this teacher incentive fund. And so I'm anxious to hear from other folks in the panel, but I do think that we've hit that tipping point where now there is enough investment and enough momentum behind this movement that it's going to be very hard for anyone to roll back. Thanks. Um, I want to switch uh, to John, who, um, um, in addition uh, to running uh, the Prince George County school system, uh, where he established a great reputation, then um, has been responsible for much of, uh, of the great work uh, that uh, the Gates Foundation has done in this field. And you would have thought that uh, that would be a pretty good job. Um, but he's uh, leaving um, to go back. But why don't you describe your new job, and then why don't you tell us what you think you've learned with your stint at, you know, in, in the nonprofit research world as opposed to the, the world of inner city schools. Um, so um, thank you very much. Um, so the bottom line is I'm going to return um, and take uh, the deputy leadership position for the Los Angeles Unified School District uh, in L.A. Um, and I think, thank you, so prayers and candles. Um, so, so I actually think that the fundamental reason why I would do that is um, it was a very hard decision because I do think the work that the foundation doing is, is so critical around catalyzing the opportunities that my brothers like uh, the senator here has been able to do at very, very, very deliberate um, and important risk in the legislature and um, be able to make that be 
um, movement at scale across this country. But for me, this was very much centered um, at why I want to wrap my comments around, which is the youth of this country's fundamental civil rights. Their fundamental right to be in um, an effective school, their fundamental right to be in front of the most effective teachers and teachers growing in that effectiveness, um, and what we're going to do uh, to either dramatically assure those rights um, or to be responsible for responding when those rights um, are being challenged or blocked. I think that Race to the Top um, has been a sea change in education in, in an incredibly short period of time. So more has probably happened, in my opinion, in the last 18 months with little or no investment, actually, of federal funds, but the promise of federal funds. And I think that happened in a couple of ways. One was it was a very different form of catalyzing uh, fundamental educational change. This was a competition as opposed to an allocation. And this notion of competing for significant dollars for the most essential issues, these are the issues that really do affect the opportunity for achievement and economic viability for the youth when they leave our schools, um, we're at the heart of this. Um, that is the quality and effectiveness of instruction, the quality and effectiveness of the schools people attend to, the systems by which we'll know what those schools um, are doing the right job um, for where they tag tax dollars and spend them um, on a community's behalf, um, and the transparency around doing that. And doing this in a way where the work is going to be very transparent. And I think, obviously, that's had a huge catalytic effect. Uh, laws have changed. Uh, data systems have changed in ways that are almost uh, hard to imagine. I mean, the kind of firewalls that occurred in data systems between linking individual student growth and individual teacher growth um, were probably have considered to have been just impossible to tear down. And they, in many cases, have just simply disappeared um, around this. I think what's at the heart of that is not just a powerful club by any means, but it really catalyzed a coalition of the willing. So there were coalitions that formed across states and formed districts that I just had always hoped would happen. Strong labor, strong leadership, strong management and teacher voice for the right issue. And in many ways, what we've seen is fairly astonishing decisions being made um, and commitments being made to do this work. Um, albeit only two of those awards have gone out, and there's a whole group to go out this time, and I'm sure that'll be the grist for a good chunk of conversation. So I wanted to put my three minutes as kind of wins and worries, whole bunch of wins. Really worried about two very big issues, capacity of districts to actually do the work they've committed to, and capacity of state offices of education to facilitate this fairly dramatic change in the way we do business in the human capital space. And I think paying attention to that is going to be critical if we're going to garner the wins that we actually hope to be able to see. And in large urban systems where my heart um, and sweat and blood needs to be, there is a thin ability, and they've been devastated for a long time, both around the economics of being able to do this and the way human capital has been thought about, and even more so at state systems. So I think that the wins are as much um, a worry um, as just kind of celebrating what we've come from. Uh, thank you. Let me just add something that, uh, that I found in doing some reporting about Race to the Top. First of all, the applications, which are thousands of pages long, long promise all kinds of things that, um, that anyone who knows a lot about the particular school system, as John probably does and as everyone at this table probably does, would look at and say, well, they might not be able to deliver that. The Department of Education's answer is, well, if they don't deliver it, 
um, we're going to get our check back or we're going to withhold our check. And I mean, the politics of doing that, I mean, we all want to watch that happen. Um, <laughs> second, with that in mind, um, the press really played a hand in making Race to the Top the great success that it was from the standpoint of the education reformers in the following way. By calling it a contest, they would highlight the top amount of money that was available to a state. For example, New York State, it was $800 million. New York State has a giant budget gap. So the issue always was, well, how are we going to get our $800 million? In fact, in Governor Patterson's current budget, which he wrote in January or February, that $800 million is already there for next year. Now, there's a slight problem with that. First of all, as everyone at this table knows, the $800 million is doled out over three or four years, so it's not there in one year. And second, uh, you kind of have to win the contest to get the money. Um, so that $800 million is already bought and spent for. So the idea that if you do win it, they're going to come after you to give you a check back for it when you don't deliver on all these things. And, of course, the other thing is with that $800 million, you're actually supposed to do something. They don't just give you a check. You present a budget where you say, well, we're going to spend part of the $800 million doing this, part of the 800 It's not new money to fill a budget hole, but it's written about that way. Anyway, I want to switch uh, to Katie and ask you, with all your experience, is any of this stuff really likely to work? <laughs> Um, I think so. Um, and and let, me, let me just back up a paragraph or two. I don't think anybody in this room who runs any kind of an organization, whether it's a business or a nonprofit like I do, would disagree with the four focus areas um, of this effort to improve an organization, otherwise known as public education. Great people good measuring systems, clear standards, good evaluation, better data systems, all those things are fundamental to helping an organization get better. <clears throat> um, but, and we actually believe so much in the potential that's here that we led an effort of a coalition of organizations in Washington that organized essentially against the teachers unions to protect the race atop money um, from this raid um, for the edu jobs bill, and that include drafting the letter that the moderate senators sent um, last week, saying we're not going to do this. Okay, so we think this is really important. But John is absolutely right that we have huge capacity issues, um, and and that um, the tools that need to be developed to make this work are going to be tough. So. Um, and, and that includes things like the tests themselves. M most of the previous education sessions that I've been to here, whenever testing comes up and too much testing comes up, in particular, the whole audience starts applauding. Okay, so you think people are testing too much, and you don't like much the quality of the tests that are uh, that are being used. Well, <clears throat> those are the exact same tests that some states at least will use to, to measure whether teachers are growing their kids or not. And so when your children's teacher tells you, not only did we teach the test last year, but this year my salary, my career, my everything else is going to depend on those results, you can be sure I'm going to be t teaching that test um, even more than I do now. So 
moving toward stronger assessments, which luckily Colorado was already on the path to do, and which we on a, as a country are on a path to do by 2014-15 is a really important part of making this work. So we have higher standards for all of our kids. So we have assessments that measure better and more in a more robust way than the little multiple choice tests that you're used to. That's really important. But so too is something else that nobody ever talks about. Most of our teachers now, even people brand new to the profession, essentially have to make up what they're teaching. We give them a copy of the very vague standards that most states have adopted, which provide literally no clarity on what they should teach. We hand them a textbook that usually bears no relationship to the standards, and we just say, go teach. The result of that is that, <clears throat> by and large, they have to go home every night and make up what they're going to teach. And most teachers, frankly, aren't very good at that. And if who's in the classroom is mostly poor or mostly black or mostly Latino, you can very much bet that what they expect is going to be a lot lower than what's expected across town. So we got to really work hard here, not just on the capacity of agency officials, but on the tools that teachers have the curriculum, the lessons, the units, assignments that they can draw on as they teach kids to higher standards. It's hugely important to making this work. Thank you. Um, Linda, you, uh, you ran uh, the president's education transition team. Um, so how's he doing, and is he going to have the guts to veto this thing if, um, if it stays in? Which thing are you talking uh, about? The, uh, the, OB, the, the OB. I have no idea what... He will decide on that, but I will say that um, Why do you have no the idea? race, the race to the top uh, itself, is in a sense it's bold reform, but it is not the big reform and it is not the tough reform that we yet have to do. Um, it has taken on some of these issues that everyone's talked about. Um, and Mike and I work together on the on the transition team, trying to get these issues on the table, uh, making sure that you know. Teacher evaluation really matters and counts is, a, is an important issue. Data systems, uh, new assessments, and so on. But if you think about what we actually need to do to make this happen, the standards won't teach themselves. Uh, the capacity issues are enormous. And we have not yet even begun much of what the president promised around the kinds of reforms that high-achieving nations, which we are not one of at the moment, uh, have been undertaking for the last 20 or 30 years. So those include things like, um, first of all, standards and assessments that are much bolder than what we're even envisioning for 2014. I was working with somebody from Singapore, uh, which is number one in the world on the TIMS assessments, folks in Finland who are, lead the world on the other um, PISA assessments. Uh, these are places where what kids are doing for assessment is conducting uh, major research projects and writing them up in versions that look like they came out of a scientific research journal. They are undertaking experiments and you know um, uh, uh, various kinds of science projects on a regular basis, and that is in the accountability and assessment system. Uh, they use no multiple choice assessments. In Singapore, in much of China, in Finland, it's all written, oral, project, et cetera. And their kids are doing the kind of work that's going to make them the scientists and the technologists of the future. Our kids are still, for the most part, bubbling in. So the level of that reform has got to be much greater. Let me ask but this, to how implement did we get it, there? I mean, we spend more money than any of those countries per student. Yeah, we waste our money in many ways. And there are three ways I would argue that we waste much of our money. Number one, inequality. 
uh, we have the most unequal set of inputs of any country in the world. And so John is going into LAUSD. 52 kids in a classroom at the high school level, not enough desks, chairs, or books. California just cut $2,000 per pupil out of a budget that was already 48th ranked in the country. Uh, it looks like third world conditions in a lot of schools in poor communities in this country. We spend three times more in any state on the education of the wealthiest kids than we do on the education of the poorest kids. Uh, no other high, no high achieving nation does that. They fund schools centrally and equally. Preschool education. Uh, at a panel this morning, Charles Ogletree, Kamala Harris, and others were talking about sort of the pathway towards uh, getting rid of the uh, issues we have around crime, where we're now spending more on prisons in some states than we spend on higher education. But that begins in elementary school because most inmates are functionally illiterate and most are high school dropouts. Zero to five, preschool investments, where we have an achievement gap before kids even start school. We haven't begun, really, to do what other nations routinely do, to make sure that every kid comes to school with a level playing field. Uh, the third piece of that is a teacher policy that really prepares great teachers and leaders and ensures that they learn how to become effective before they come into the classroom and are helped to become effective throughout. This is what Finland did to spur its trajectory to the top of the world. It's what Singapore has done. We have not even begun that issue. These are all things that are on the president's agenda. But Race to the Top gets through some bold reforms, but has not begun yet to work on those big and tough, serious reforms that we will need to have an education system. We're now 35th in the world out of 40 nations in math, 29th out of 40 in science, dropping in um, reading. Uh, those things are going to take a much more systemic approach. Our other uh, waste, in addition to inequality and the failure to invest in teachers and leaders, is popcorn innovation. We innovate like crazy, and the Singaporeans come here, and they look at our innovations, they take them, and they go scale them up system-wide. We begin things and end things. We fund them and defund them. They succeed, and then we kill them. Anybody who's John's old enough... <laughs> Mike, I don't know if you're old enough yet to have been in the system long enough to see something you've invented that has worked and has been successful uh, be ended because we don't have a sustained, purposeful approach to innovating and scaling it up. Let me turn to Mike with a question about um, midnight last night I was thinking about this question. You, your book, which I, I recommend this book to everybody, um, it's called in, in the Deep Hearts Core. Did I get that right? Um, in the Deep Hearts Core. Great book. Deep Hearts Core. I didn't do the title. He did. Don't, don't blame that. My yeah, mom no. can't even remember the title. Okay, either. yeah. It's, it's hard. I wrote it down. I can't read my handwriting. In that book, you would never believe that the guy who wrote that book uh, would be worried about uh, the kind of education reform we've been talking about for the last half hour. Um, there's nothing in that book about teacher accountability. There's nothing in that book about how the problem in Greenville, Mississippi is teacher tenure. Um, this book is all about one teacher, you, who, who falls flat on his face in uh, the first few months and picks himself up and, and applies himself and reaches a bunch of students. But it, 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 you read that book and you can't believe this is the same guy 
who's you know nattering on about all this legislation and all this stuff in Colorado. What changed other than the fact that you were the principal of an inner city school um, in Denver? Um, well, first, I'd agree with Linda, and this is why we had such fun working on the transition together and why I think Obama struck this very important middle ground, which is it, it's a both and, right? I think the great lie and, and part of what is misunderstood by this OB amendment is the notion that it's either funding or reform. And it's never, it's never one or the other. It's got to be both. I mean, the next big agenda I'll work on after this bill is a ballot amendment for our state for next year to increase revenues for K-12 funding. Because you're right, we're fighting you at 47th. Uh, and so, uh, but, but we also know that once we get, that we have to demonstrate to the taxpayers that when that money comes into the system, we're actually going to use it more efficiently and effectively and make sure we're delivering results for kids. Because what we do know is even in those five lowest performing schools in the state of Colorado, four of them that are in my district, if you walk into any of those four, what we know is that actually right now in those schools, in those classrooms, there are teachers there that are knocking out of the park, right? And what we know is what the research is showing us that John and others have put out is that the, the difference across teachers within any given school is actually much more dramatic than the difference across schools. Right? So all the parents out there, like myself, who are shopping neighborhoods on where you want to buy your house because you think there may be a good school there or not, the far more important decision is actually which teacher your kid gets assigned when they walk in the door. Because you could go to one of those schools in my district, which are the worst schools in the state, and if you could assign the right teacher, you actually might be better off. Now, I say that as a sign of hope, because what it means is that we know there are folks that are doing this incredibly well. What it takes is what Linda described is for us to figure out how do we most accurately assess what that means to be doing it so well, and how do we use those, that information to identify those folks that are doing it to learn from them to help scale and expand their practices. Um, and that's why I think one of the things that I found in my experience as a high school principal, I, I spent the last six years as a high school principal, and I would always say uh, the only magic about my school is the people that work in it. The only magic. Uh, because what it takes to turn around any of the low-performing high schools, middle schools, elementary schools you've seen in the country are incredibly committed and capable teachers and principals who are willing themselves to be reflective practitioners, who are willing to be lifelong learners, willing to sit down at a table with other professionals, look at student work, and say, what went well here and what didn't go well? And what are we going to do to make sure next week goes better? Because it's not about the kids. It's about us figuring out a way to make sure we teach this until they learn it. And so I think uh, what changed for me, Steve, was the, was the core lesson from my work as a principal to realize the only way you get there is by getting more and more great teachers and great principals. And Linda's right. Part of that is about recruiting them and retaining them. But a big part of it is about growing them. It's about figuring out how do you bring in someone that's a novice and help give them the skills and the mentorship to make sure they become outstanding. And I think that uh, what, I, what I think about is teachers and principals are not the problem in this situation. Teachers and principals are the solution. But they are the only solution large enough to address the scale of the problem. So if you really want to take a shot at closing achievement gaps, if you really want to take a shot at saying, what would it look like to have a state in this country where no matter what zip code you were born in in that state, you actually had the same shot at graduating from high school and going to college? If you really want to deliver that promise, the only way you're ever going to get to do it is with great teachers and great principals. There is no other tool powerful enough to get the job done. And, and isn't it true that that's not, not to make myself unpopular at this table, but that's not really a matter of resources? You can have uh, uh, the same building that has a charter school and a regular public school in it um, in Harlem where the charter school is spending a couple of thousand dollars less per student than the public school and producing much better results in part because the public school, and this is where the taxpayers come in, 
uh, is spending $2,400 per student on uh, the pension plan for the teachers in that school, and another $1,000 or something on uh, the health care plan because, because uh, the teachers have zero deducted from their salaries, unlike the rest of us in this room, for their health care. I mean, don't we have to face those issues, too, that it's not a matter of money, that if you simply poured more money into the Los Angeles school system without making those reforms, you wouldn't be doing um, enough with the money to make the taxpayers happy that they're pouring that money in? So I want to comment that for a second. So I think um, two things. One is let's just put California in its own category for a second. <laughs> um, about the money issue, yes, more money is needed. Um, so let's just say that piece um, right there. But um, your comment is that is it fundamentally about resources or fundamentally about how the resources are distributed and used? For me, it's much more about how they are distributed and used. And fundamentally about the people. I mean, this is, absolutely. I mean, I think, Mike, you were so right on the notion we're not going to hire our way to better achievement for youth or more equitable outcomes for youth. And this is we're going to have to develop our way around that piece. And that is a very thoughtful, deliberate skill set of administration, which we are just beginning to realize it's our responsibility around this piece. Um, the, the absence of the tools um, and... and um, that, that uh, Katie, you talked about, I worry may lead us to be making more rash decisions as opposed to more thoughtful decisions about um, this future um, that we have in front of us. The notion of the support that teachers need is huge around this issue, and that the support that youth need, who are coming from very impacted situations in order to be successful, is also equally large. However, we are learning some things which are really quite fascinating across the country, and that is that there are many instances where the kind of typical notion that this is completely blocked by teachers is not true. Um, that we're learning that um, with teacher voice um, and with teachers as full partners, we are witnessing, and you are a prime example of this, as is Pittsburgh, as is Tampa, um, as in Memphis, that there, uh, as in D.C., that there are dramatic, quote, contract reforms taking place um, around this work, and that's being done with teachers, not to teachers. Um, the leadership to honor and implement those contracts is the next big hurdle, uh, as opposed to just getting them. And in some cases, uh, Stephen, actually, that is money. It is a use of money um, differently than we've currently been doing that. Um, and the idea that we just simply send out an equal allocation to every school and hope that happens is not going to work. I think we should take some questions from uh, the audience. We have, a, looks like, about 15 minutes. Um, right over there, that hand went up first. Where's the mic? All right, well, why don't we start right there since you're next to the mic. <laughs> very much. Location, location, location. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm an admirer of the KIPP charter school system, and I want to ask the panel how important is the number of hours and days that kids stand, spend in school over the year, as the KIPP school, KIPP schools do a lot more than the average. My first Thank you. Is, my first response is that it's hugely important if they're spending those hours in front of a highly effective teacher and in a system that is being very deliberate and thoughtful about their individual needs. More hours um, in a situation where they previously have not gotten that, I don't think that actually works. Yeah. On balance, however, um, if you have to actually grow at the rate we're expecting it, 
the current school day in this country isn't remotely close to what's necessary. And my two colleagues at the end here have produced a um, insurmountable amount of research to prove that that's true. Key on the issue of time for kids, uh, particularly for kids who are in low-income uh, communities, is uh, time in the summer. Summer learning loss is actually enormous in low-income communities. Um, and so we actually have evidence that kids achieve at a gain at about the same rate. Low-income and high-income kids gain at about the same rate from fall to spring. But in the summer, kids who are not off getting enrichment and camps and all kinds of things that middle and upper-class kids get are losing achievement. And they come back to school below where they were when they left in June. So one of the things that we actually need systemically, particularly in low-income communities are extensive, high-quality summer programs that are organized around reading, uh, learning, enrichment, et cetera, that middle and upper-class kids take for granted and that will stem that summer learning loss. Uh, over there, let's see how fast you can run. <laughs> <laughs> Also about the KIPP schools, one thing I noticed when I visited them and read about them is the role of parents and how much effort is placed on the cultivation of parents to take responsibility for their kids' learning. I wonder if you feel that's equally important and is it possible in the public school system? I, I mean, go ahead. Go, no, you go first. I'll take that as someone who spent the last six years as a principal doing that. Um, at our school, we always believe two things. One is that it's absolutely important to do everything we can to make sure and engage parents in their students' lives, and we try to find ways to do that that aren't uh, off-putting or intimidating to parents who may not have enjoyed school the first time around. That's why I want to come back the second time. Um, so yes, it's critically important. And the second equally important part of that commitment is no matter what a parent is ever able to do or not able to do, that's never going to be an excuse for us to not deliver the highest quality outcome for a kid. Um, Mike's school, as I recall, is not a charter school. It's a regular public yeah, mine's school. Yeah, mine's a district school. So it's not that school. you can only be in one kind of context. I've yeah. seen the same thing in both regular public schools and charter schools. But you've got to get kids involved, parents involved, in their own kids' learning. You've got to make time available in the evenings, on the weekends, for teachers and parents to meet together. Not just say, you know, it's back to school night. I'd like to talk about my child. No, we don't do that now. When do we ever do it? That's what parents want, is to be engaged around their own child's learning. So the comment I want to make to that is I've never met a single parent um, who did not want to be engaged in schools. And I've met many, many parents where the school fundamentally does not actually want that engagement at the most complex and thorny issues. The fundamental leverage point for me is information. Information is the underground currency that separates privilege and poverty. And knowing what costs will actually have credit, knowing what courses actually have the college ready, understanding the track records of teachers, that's a very powerful form of information which creates engagement. The charter school that I wrote about in Manhattan where, where uh, they share a building with, uh, with the public school, the charter school teachers have a cell phone which is purchased for them by the charter school. Remember, the charter school spends less money per student than the public school, but they buy cell phones. They're required to answer them at most decent hours <laughs> of the day and night. Um, and I interviewed a parent who had one kid on the public school side of the building, one, school, uh, one kid on uh, the charter side, and that's exactly what she said. I can never reach my teacher on uh, the public side. On the charter side, it's different. 
Again, no money, not a matter of money. Right there. I'm Stan Kritzik from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <clears throat> Milwaukee public school system is in what I refer to as a race to the bottom. <clears throat> the state legislature, which is controlled by the Democrats and therefore dominated by the teachers' union, failed to pass legislation to allow a reasonable application to be done. The MPS school board is dominated by the teachers' union because of the way the voting is rigged. Tenure reigns Eber Alice. Uh, we just fired 800 new teachers because of budget constraints instead of hiring the least of, of firing the least effective teachers. And I just wonder, and Milwaukee has a terrible graduation rate, and anybody who has any education, assets, money, or anything does not have their kids in MPS. I just wonder how many of the cities across the country are in this deplorable straight state rather than the handful of cities that have been named. And it seems to me that there has to be some national effort made to overcome this incredible inertia, domination by teachers' unions or whatever it is, to get something underway. Well, that, uh, uh, the layoff issue is sort of one of the criteria, I mean, race to the top. It's sort of implicit in it. But um, the fact is, in New York City, for example, they're talking about X thousand layoffs. If they simply did layoffs purely across the seniority spectrum, not targeting uh, the senior teachers who get paid more, first of all, you, uh, you wouldn't be able to do that legally, but not, to, to, you know, not doing that, but just right across the spectrum, there would be 28% fewer layoffs because it would cost less because they'd save more per teacher. I mean, it's just a simple math example. Can I take a shot at this? I've actually uh, been to Milwaukee, was there this fall working with some of your senators. I think Senator Lena Taylor there was working on some of the reform legislation, so I came in to, to visit with them. Um, and, and I will say that I absolutely think that, is Milwaukee an AFT city, or do you know, or an NEA? Is it AFT? Does anyone know? I think it's NEA. NEA. Okay. Um, so one thing I'll just say to your point, I mean, in Colorado, one of the things we did as a part of this bill we just passed is that we changed the layoff policies. So whenever there are reductions in force anywhere in the state, those reductions will be made first by effectiveness and not by seniority. So anytime someone is, is dismissed, you keep the most effective teacher first, um, which I think is an important change. And I say that because we did that with the full collaboration of the AFT. Um, and Randy Weingarten was a supporter. And we spent a long time building a coalition. But I think a lot of what it takes is garnering all of the interest in a community to come in and go to bat for this issue. When you think about the general politics of how education issues are, are, are fought, it's normally uh, the school board have, has a strong lobbying force, the principals do, the teachers do. All three of those are pretty significant. When you think about an urban school district and you think, uh, you know, for every one teacher, there are 25 kids. And for those 25 kids, there are probably 50 parents, right? For every one principal, there are 400 kids at least, or 800 parents, which means the educators and the students are a big part of this. But they are only one part of the broader fabric of the whole community that relies on this. So in 
In Colorado, when our bill passed, we had the AFT on board, we had the Principals Association, we had the Chambers of Commerce, we had the NAACP, we had the Hispanic Chamber, and what we started to do was build a much broader conversation among all the parties that are invested in turning Milwaukee around in the way that you're describing. And I do think there are ways to get to dynamic outcomes there, but, but we found it comes more from, um, from bringing people to the table and saying, these are the things we, we believe we have to get done, and what are you gonna do to help us get it done? Let me just add, one or two sentences to what uh, to, to what Mike said because you didn't get a full answer to your question and you asked the question how many American cities are stuck like Milwaukee? Yeah. We we work across um, many urban school districts in the in the country and I think I can say to you in all honesty your city has been stuck longer uh, and at a lower level than uh, than any other city that I at least can think of. Um, Congratulations. So, well, you get a prize at the door. The, uh, the black-white achievement gap is bigger in Wisconsin than any other state, and the reason is because of the problems in Milwaukee, which Wisconsin treats legally differently than it treats all of its other districts. It has a whole different set of ed code and, and expectations and laws around almost everything Milwaukee does. And the worst part of it is that the, um, the Black Caucus from Milwaukee votes against every sort of reform that comes to the state. I think they're changing. I think that's changing. That. Yeah, I think that's they're changing. That, thankfully. Yeah. <clears throat> from Lena Taylor. Yes. Yep. She's alone yeah. for right. twice, though. Got to get her some backup. Yep. <laughs> um, until they shut us down, I see Elliot over there. He's not Sorry. shutting us down, so keep going. Right over there. Yeah. Um, maybe some of you can share. For the viewers at home. What's coming after? Race to the Top is, not, is a big reform, but it's not the only thing, Linda, you're just saying, that there is uh, obviously some bigger things that needs to be done. So let's imagine that two or three states are doing a fabulous job, and there are maybe um, some formula or schema or framework that can be replicated. How, how is it going to be adopted by other states? What, what comes after the first round? You know, if you look at, uh, I just wrote a book called The Flat World in Education, which looks at other countries, but it also looks at successful states. And I highlighted several states that actually raised student achievement, extensively closed the achievement gap significantly. My current favorite is New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey, anybody here from New Jersey? Any, is Jersey in the house? No. Wow. What? <laughs> How can that be? Um, well, you know, I used to live in New York, and I used to live in Philadelphia, and I thought of New Jersey as that stretch of I-95 where you can never get anywhere because the traffic is so bad. But, but it is actually they've done some amazing reforms. They started uh, 10 years ago to uh, close the gap in funding. They, uh, Christine Todd Whitman put in place the parity funding for the low-funded high minority districts, Newark and Trenton and others that have been struggling for years. They put in place high-quality preschools, zero to five, uh, with highly trained teachers. They put in place literacy coaches, a new uh, set of uh, programs around comprehensive school reform. Over the last 10 years, they've cut the achievement gap in half. They are one of the highest achieving states in the nation with the greatest uh, minority and low-income population, 45% students of color. It ranks number one in the nation on writing assessment and in the so, top five. So can Los Angeles replicate that? Well, Los Angeles would have to think about, there would have to be a resource component. There would have to be a lot of other things that Los Angeles doesn't have right now. I mean, if, 
you know, they're, they're, we have to make those investments. Connecticut's another one that invested in high quality teachers and drove achievement in the 90s to number one in the nation, even while it was becoming more low income and more uh, language diverse and minority during that time. You have to have a purposeful, systemic approach. Some states have done that. Most of them have done popcorn reforms. You know, this, that, and the other thing without that purposeful uh, attention to uh, what Mike was talking about, the eye on the prize, having great teachers well supported in every classroom for every kid in every community. I also think that something that's going to have to happen because as you can see, Race to Top is not going to fund 50 state plans. Um, we're going to have to learn in districts and states how to learn from other places. And we've got to really move beyond to things are so different here that that can't be applied. Or our conditions are so different here that that cannot be applied. What we're learning is that the, the notion that, for example, poverty is destiny is ridiculous. We've got proof points that show that is not the case. And there is nothing so different about a youth in New York City or in Colorado um, or in LA that we cannot learn how to do that. Um, and I think that's going to be a very important part of the culture in the next eight or so years if scale is really going to happen. We have time. Um, go ahead, Mike. Then we have time for one more. I think there is something very important in the architecture of Race to the Top that facilitates that, which is what John was referencing is, is the ability to now move states toward a common set of core standards and a common set of core assessments means that you now move from what we currently have, which is 50 different operating systems in 50 different states, right, where one state's windows couldn't communicate with another states. And you've actually removed that by saying, now we really are talking apples to apples. So right now, every state in the country listens to what Linda just said and said, oh, that's New Jersey. We couldn't do that because you know, their assessment's different, and their kids are different, and their standards are different. One of, the, one of the genius components of the common standards and common assessments is when we're now looking at a New Jersey, if that's the one, that's really blowing the roof off the place, you can't explain that difference away anymore. And now you've created the infrastructure to be able to measure that growth and to, and to document and to replicate that. Growth. One more short question. Right up, you had your hand up. Sure. I was lucky enough to stumble into one of the best discussions I've heard about race, uh, and one of the great presenter, Miss Harris, is here. Right, stand up. You were fabulous. No, you were fabulous. Three African-Americans who really were talking about, you know, the prisons being overpopulated and then we have racism, excuse me, people going back all the time. <laughs> I lisp. <laughs> but when it really came down to it, it was that we must start education at birth. And you must start reading to your children at the age of one on, and one of the presenters said, and if you think that that three-year-old who can't read doesn't know what the book says, try skipping a sentence, because they'll tell you, Dad, you didn't do it right. So my, my request is to those of you that have the Obama administration's ear, is every time any one of them speaks, please have them do a tagline, read to your children mm -hmm. every day. Even though you violated the rule by not asking a question, that was such a good statement, you can end the program on it. Um, I do want to thank our panelists. As you can tell, this is, this is their life's work, and they're awfully good at it, and we really owe them a lot of thanks for being here and for the work they do.